You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. You may have heard of today's story. And if you did, you likely heard it was a mystery. We're following some big news out of Alaska where their king and snow crab seasons have been canceled because of what biologists say is a population collapse. In the days after the cancellation of the snow crab season was announced thanks to more than a billion missing crabs, one prevailing theory took hold online. I mean, of course it did. We have become so used to witnessing the impact of a changing climate that it is now second nature to lay any difficult environmental news squarely at its feet, even when the answer goes far beyond that. This is not intended to minimize the climate crisis, which may indeed have played a role in what happened to the crabs that thousands depend on for their livelihoods and many more depend on for dinner. But it is intended to hopefully force you to picture our ecosystems as complex and wondrous and, yes, full of mysteries we still don't fully understand. So what happened to the crabs? Where did they go? And will they ever come back? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Spencer Roberts is a science and ecology journalist who wrote this piece looking into the missing snow crabs for Nautilus. Hello, Spencer. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. This is a really fascinating thing to talk about. And maybe we can just start uh, where the story starts. Like, when did it first become clear that this year's crab fishing season on the Bering Sea would not be normal? So, starting around last year, the surveys that NOAA conducts, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, started to result in very low Uh, numbers of snow crabs, which was kind of shocking because in the years prior, they had published uh, very promising survey statistics showing uh, high levels of what we call recruitment of uh, legal-sized male crabs. So crabbers can only keep male crabs. They can only keep crabs of a certain size. So when we start to see uh, crabs meeting those legal requirements, we call that high recruitment And the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council, who regulates the industry, as a result, raised the quotas, the catch limits. Everything was looking really good for the snow crabs, in contrast to the king crabs, which have been declining uh, pretty steadily for uh, the last few years. But they're a fraction of the populations that once existed in the 80s, and we can get into that later. Mm -hmm. But... uh, NOAA started recording very low numbers of snow crabs, and the models showed a decline somewhere along the lines of 10 billion, 11 billion snow crabs that had effectively disappeared. So quotas went from something like 18 uh, million to 45 million snow crabs in the years prior to the crash. In 2021, they were drastically reduced, but it didn't really help. And in 2022, this year, uh, in October, they had to announce the closure of the fishery because the snow crabs had reached a threshold that was so low that the Fisheries Management Council was required to cancel the season. Season is not only not normal, but not existent. 
I see. And now I know we're going to get into this in detail, but initially, what were the explanations as to why the season was being canceled and what had happened to these crabs? Right. So Noah has been pretty cautious in terms of uh, offering explanations, and that's, you know, prudent, scientific practice to be conservative. Sure. Uh, but the main theories have something to do essentially with climate change. And there's definitely a lot of evidence that the climate has played a factor here. So in the years preceding the crash, uh, record lows in sea ice have been recorded in the Bering Sea around 2017 to 2020. Uh, there were winters where there was effectively no ice in the Bering Sea. And this affects the snow crabs because uh, they like to stay in cold water, generally under two degrees Celsius. Okay. And that cold water forms when the ice forms because uh, it rejects salt water as the ice is all fresh. This dense, salty, cold water, almost freezing, sinks to the bottom and it forms this cold pool, as oceanographers call it. And that's, that's their preferred habitat, especially as juveniles. And it's uh, difficult for their predators, some of the fish that eat them, like cod, to uh, get into those uh, into that cold pool. So uh, one of the the main theory in general has something to do with the collapse of the cold pool. Right. The thing is, however, it's not that the temperatures themselves killed the crabs. Whereas in the coast of British Columbia last year, biologists recorded the deaths of something like a billion sea creatures from heat waves. Those temperatures were much higher and in very shallow water. And these crabs live on the seafloor of the Bering Sea. So we're not seeing temperatures high enough to directly kill the crabs. So the question still stands, while the crash may have been catalyzed by climate, what exactly the mechanism that killed them was? We can get into talking about the theories for that. That's what I want to talk about next. But first, maybe just to, to set the stage so people understand the stakes. Can you give us an idea of the scale of this industry? Like how many people are employed? Uh, how much money is generated? How big a disaster is it when you have to literally cancel the entire season? Yeah, I'm not expert on the economics, but it's something between uh, the estimates I've seen are $100 million, $200 million, 130 to 160 or so uh, in terms of the economy of the industry. And that includes not just the crabbers, but people who work in processing facilities, uh, distribution facilities. Right. The um, number of people, at least in the seafood industry, it's in the tens of thousands. So there are a ton of people who are essentially out of a job this season and presumably for say, seasons to come as uh, the the fishery remains closed, and uh, it's you know a, a huge impact on a lot of them because some of them came out there because the numbers were looking so good and the quotas were being raised on snow crabs. Now, in terms of talking about uh, what happened to these crabs and what caused it, I guess my first question, and this is because, as you pointed out, the term being used is disappeared, is, is do we know these crabs are dead? Do we know they don't exist? Uh, is it possible they've simply gone somewhere else and are, are being missed in the counts? Yeah, it's absolutely possible that they have uh, migrated. There's, you know, that's one of the theories. It's not, it's it's a more tenuous one. Okay. Presumption is that a lot of crabs died. And it seems to make sense, um, you know, the crabs could have gone over to the Russian side and beyond our surveys, but Russia's conducting surveys as well. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, they could have walked off the continental shelf 
into the deep water where we're simply not looking for them. But biologists generally think that they either died or there's another theory which we can get into later is that many of these crabs actually never existed and we overestimated their populations. Well, let's start with the main theory then that you've kind of um, you've kind of already drawn out. What do we know about how responsible climate change could be uh, even in the deep cold waters? And what does the NOAA think of that? And what are they working with as their main theory? Right. So essentially, the big climate impact on the crabs has to do with the cold pool, as we discussed. And one of the main theories is that uh, higher predation rates from predators of crab like cod at least were uh, partially responsible for the crash. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's a couple problems with that theory. And the first one is that we have actually seen the cold pool collapse before. In the late 80s and the early 2000s, we've actually seen temperatures and temperature distributions similar to the ones we saw during these record sea ice lows. And the crab populations did not crash, the snow crabs at least. Hmm. And the other thing about it is that we might expect if the, cra- uh, the cod had uh, new access to prey, we might expect to see a bump in their populations. And we're actually seeing the opposite. The cod, our numbers are very poor. Uh, the catch numbers are very low during these sea ice lows. And in the Gulf of Alaska, on the other side of the Aleutians, the cod fishery was actually closed, kind of like the king crabs in 2020, for the first time. So that complicates that theory a bit. Uh, there's another theory that essentially has to do with the metabolic demand on the crabs, meaning that uh, the higher temperatures of the water require the crabs to find more food to maintain their body temperatures and their homeostasis. Mm. And as their preferred habitat contracted with the cold pool, they were confined to a smaller area. They couldn't find as much food and many of them starved. Or one theory says they even uh, ate each other. And that's possible. One thing I'll say about that is that's that behavior has only been observed uh, in labs. We haven't seen that in the wild, although we can talk about this as well. We haven't spent a ton of time observing crabs underwater, but it, it makes sense that uh, many of the crabs could have starved. And I want to stress that you know all of these theories are not mutually exclusive, and all of these factors could, could be interplaying in many different ways, and there could be a lot of causes. Right. And one of the things that uh, some biologists I've talked to, like uh, Paul Dayton at Scripps, said about the starvation theory is that it's hard to imagine uh, that fishing wouldn't play into that. The fishing impact, especially trawling on the seabed, that when crabs are looking for food availability, the impact of decades of heavy trawling could definitely reduce the availability of food. And there's research to back that up as well, which shows that the impacts of trawling on the seafloor, the benthic ecosystems in the Bering Sea, can last for decades. So we're definitely looking at interplaying factors here, and it's very hard to parse out the influence of one versus the other. But it's interesting how in the media, some have been talked about a lot and some have been talked about less. Before we get to why that might be, a couple of other things I've uh, seen in reference to this, but also have in general seen uh, historically when we talk about rapid declines of species populations are... Uh, first, disease, and do we know anything about that? And then second, you know, you mentioned uh, 
overfishing of the food the crabs might eat? Do we know if maybe we've overestimated the population in the past that we've simply been overfishing the crabs themselves? So uh, your first question about disease, there is yeah an important disease called hematodinium that affects these crabs, and we don't know a ton about it, actually. So it's an active area of study, and we need to study it more. But essentially, there are uh, indications that infections can increase with increasing temperatures. So that could be an explaining factor as well. Uh, however, we do have data that show the infection rates of this uh, disease have spiked in past years without resulting in population crashes. So that's another complicating factor to that one. And then in terms of the uh, accuracy of our models, that is one of the most interesting, I think, aspects of the testimonies of the scientists that I talk to. And we can talk a little bit more in detail about Braxton Dew, the uh, NOAA whistleblower who essentially uh, brought forward uh, the hypothesis that... um, we had been overcounting king crabs in the 80s before their populations crashed. And uh, he paid a high cost professionally for it. Tell me more about that. You know, who is he and, and how did that work and how does it relate to what's going on now? Yeah, absolutely. So Braxton Dew worked for 25 years for, the, for NOAA as part of his 40-year career as a marine biologist. And he's probably spent more time underwater observing Arctic crabs than anyone. He logged 943 dives observing king crabs in the Gulf of Alaska at the uh, research station in Kodiak in the early 90s. And what's interesting is that uh, he observed this behavior in king crabs called potting, which is when the king crabs come together in the daytime, they form these big piles or sometimes spheres, and they generally just rest there in the day. And it's not totally clear why they do this. It could be something to do with predation, conserving heat. One really cool theory is that they're actually amplifying a pheromone signal that travels miles through the current and helps other crabs find them. Um, But these king crabs form these big pods on the seafloor. And Noah acknowledged that the way that these crabs come together in high densities makes it hard to estimate their populations. But for a long time, we thought that only juvenile king crabs did this. Um, Braxton found evidence that they were forming these paws in deep water when he was diving as adults. And he brought this evidence to administrators in NOAA in 1996 and essentially made this point, hey, I think the way that the social behavior of these crabs complicates and maybe compromises the accuracy of our methods of sampling and estimating their population numbers. And we use those same methods for the uh, the Alaskan crabs. Right, right. So uh, the methods are basically uh, trawl samples. So we sample a small section of the ch- seafloor, and when we catch the crabs, we count the crabs in there, and then we extrapolate the density of crabs in that small area to a big rectangle of seafloor. It's like 400 square nautical miles. So if we do come across one of those pods or aggregations of crabs, there's a potential that we could be overcounting them. And Braxton Dew was making this point in a paper that he tried to publish in 1996. His uh, administrators blocked it in review, and it 
resulted in a turmoil essentially within the agency. He got transferred from Kodiak to Seattle. They dismantled the dive underwater uh, crab research program. And he spent the next 12 years in Seattle fighting to get these papers published. And he actually had to wait until his former bosses retired to get them through the review process and get them published. And you'll see a lot of links to that research in my article. So that's a big part of um, this story. And there's a lot of reasons to think that similar dynamics could be happening and could be applicable to the snow crab populations. What does uh, Braxton propose to count these crabs more accurately and see if, I guess, are we still trying to determine if they're really disappeared or they were never there at all? Right. So that's a good question. I didn't ask him directly what methods he would propose to estimate the crab populations, but I imagine he would suggest something that involved observing the crabs underwater. Because what we're doing right now is just, you know, casting a net and pulling up and seeing what we find. Right. And, you know, that's a topic and, uh, you know, an assertion that a lot of marine biologists have made about the way that we research marine life and the way that we sort of think of them as resources instead of wild animals. And there's a lot of aspects to their behavior that could complicate the way that we perceive them when we're not actually observing. Certainly, uh, observing them underwater would help to understand a little bit about more about their populations. Uh, and there are a lot of scientists who have made suggestions uh, for a long time in, in fisheries biology and in uh, conservation biology that uh, we need to rethink the way that we manage marine wildlife as well and get away from this concept of pursuing the maximum yield mm -hmm. and thinking more about the ecosystem as a whole and the effects that we're having on it. And while climate may have thrown this ecosystem into turmoil, there's a strong case to be made that we should be factoring that in when we're thinking about you know, how many crabs we're extracting or how many fish we're extracting from any ecosystem as climate becomes uh, an ever-increasing factor in marine ecology. I want to ask you about what happens now. I understand that this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of collapse in a crab population uh, in the Bering Sea. What happened the last time we saw it, and can we expect a recovery this time? The history of the king crab collapses in the Bering Sea and, and the Gulf of Alaska are very interesting. And essentially, they follow a similar pattern to the snow crabs in the sense that we measured a high pulse, as they say, in recruitment, meaning male crabs getting to that legal size. That inspired regulators like the North Pacific Manage Fisheries Management Council to hike up the quotas. And then within a few years, we, we saw the crash. And so that, you know, opens a lot of questions into the management decisions and the way that we're setting the quotas. But the history of the king crab collapses is very interesting because uh, in the 80s, well, actually starting in the 60s, uh, Japan used to fish crabs off the Aleutians, and they had set up a protected area where they uh, approximated or had observed the uh, mating grounds of the crabs. And so they had protected that area from trawling. 
And when the United States passed the uh, Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation Act, which sort of sets up this management strategy of maximum sustainable yield and uh, all of the kind of regulations that follow the way that we establish these catch limits and everything, claimed that territory, that protected area that Japan established as U.S. waters. The And this is in the 80s in the Cold War. The United States invited uh, Russian factory ships to come over and we trawled that protected area. Actually, we were fishing uh, sole, a flatfish on the seafloor, but they were catching a ton of crabs actually as bycatch, essentially like collateral damage. And um, observers had these photos, tons of crabs, female crabs in the middle of the breeding season being uh, caught and thrown into the ocean dead. And uh, there's been a long controversy over the crash in the Bering Sea, uh, whether fishing had an impact. NOAA has maintained for a long time that it resulted from natural mortality. And uh, in 2021, Braxton Dew filed a whistleblower complaint invoking the Information Quality Act, providing this evidence and making the case that NOAA needs to reconsider the models and whether the um, trawling impacts and our uh, methods for estimating the population sizes could have an impact as well, because they've never identified that natural mortality event that really caused the collapses. And some of these factors seem to explain it better. In terms of your second half of the question, can we expect a recovery? Uh, Well, when we look at the king crab populations, they've never really recovered to their previous numbers. In the Gulf of Alaska, there hasn't been a commercial season for king crabs since 1992. Wow. And uh, in the Bering Sea, it's been a fraction of uh, what it was in the 80s. So if we continue to manage the snow crabs like we've managed the king crabs, which is how we manage virtually every species, according to this maximum yield uh, philosophy, I would argue that we can expect, you know, maybe slight recovery, but then we're going to immediately exert that fishing pressure again, and we're not going to see them come back to the numbers that they historically have had. I have just two more questions for you, and the first one is is a pretty simple one. We've talked about a lot of theories here and a lot of contributing factors. Will we ever know exactly what happened to these billions of crabs, if they existed? <laughs> I, I don't think we can at this point. Uh, you know, if we had maybe better methods for observing them underwater, like uh, has been suggested by Du, and before in this interview, uh, maybe we could go back and look at some other factors, but um, there's not a lot we can do to reconstruct the history. Uh, NOAA is working on some some more models that essentially put together this uh, starvation theory, and uh, those, you know, can maybe help to fill in some of the pieces. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of modeling, and that's right. the way that we have followed this population for the decades that we've fished it. and that's one of our only techniques and ways of estimating and understanding how these crabs behave. And uh, at this point, you know, I think it's important to talk about and consider all the factors and, you know, make much more conservative management decisions in the future. But in terms of finding a smoking gun, I wouldn't be very hopeful. 
Given that there are so many contributing factors or potential contributing factors at play here, and we know that some of them uh, might have been responsible, and, and it also seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we know that there's no one smoking gun, as you just said, why do you think there is that initial drive to say, and I saw this story boosted in in this way many times on social media to say, here is more evidence of the climate collapse. And this is not a question that comes from me wanting to minimize the climate crisis uh, or anything like that, because we don't do that here. But but this is science. And, and where does that impulse come from? Yeah, I think it comes from a few places. So I think a lot of well-intentioned people are, you know, in the media and also just commenting in the public sphere and we see things and there's definitely a climate connection to this story. And we want to amplify that and say, look, the climate crisis is here. Look at the effects of it. And that's really important. There's another thing to consider, though. And that is that if the climate caused the crash instead of their management decisions, that looks better for them. And it goes deeper than that as well, because the Magnuson-Stevens Act that I mentioned earlier it provides uh, it provides pathways for compensation funding for these people, uh, for fishermen and companies who uh, you know can't fish the crabs and we're expecting to be able to, only if the fishery is not closed due to overfishing. There's a high degree of pressure not only on the regulators who I should mention. There's a lot of conflicts of interest in this uh, fishing the fisheries management council. They uh, have interest in heavy industries like uh, at sea processing and factory trawling they have the interests of uh, wanting to set high quotas and you know keep the money flowing and keep the people in the fishery happy but at the same time to say that uh, the fishery collapsed because of management decisions because of overfishing means that according to the law that there's no funding to compensate uh, these fishermen who, you know, maybe a lot of them had no role in deciding how many crabs to catch. You know, they're just following the captain's orders and the captain's, you know, following the chain of command up to the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council. Sure. So there are massive conflicts of interest in the way that we manage uh, marine wildlife. And I hope that in reading my article, readers get a deeper sense and a see crabs a little bit differently and think about the ways that their social behaviors and their habitat preference and the way they interact with their ecosystem are really important to consider in the way that we treat marine wildlife and ask those questions. Why do we allow and why do we strive to extract the maximum amount of marine wildlife? Do we treat terrestrial wildlife this way. We absolutely don't. So I hope that people start to think about not only crabs, but all sorts of marine life differently. And I hope that we can start to think about our relationship to the ocean and the way that it's managed and think about crabs as wildlife instead of just a resource that we eat. Spencer, thank you so much for this. Um, I know we didn't solve the mystery, but I understand it better now. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Spencer Roberts, writing in Nautilus. That was the big story. 
I wanted to quickly share one piece of feedback we got from last week's episode on credit cards. We got a lot of feedback on this episode, but I just want to share this one from Karen. Here's my two cents on this topic. While everyone is so excited at all the stuff they are able to purchase with their points, doesn't everyone realize that they're not getting anything for free? Retailers have had to increase their prices in order to counter the fees they pay to credit card companies. That results in all customers paying higher prices for goods. So while you may be earning points, you're also paying higher prices to get those points. And in the long run, the discount one gets using points may or may not recoup the extra costs of everything. And the sad reality is there are people out here like me who refuse to play this game, plus those at the poorer end of the spectrum who can't get credit cards. But we are basically subsidizing everyone who uses points. We are also having to pay those higher prices in the stores. And while people like me perhaps deserve that, the poor or credit challenged don't. I wanted to share that because I think it's a really interesting point that we never think of when we use these systems to get our bonuses. And I say that, listen, as someone who loves his credit card points, but I'll remember it. Thanks, Karen. You can find this podcast at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can, of course, get us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. We are not on Mastodon or any of the other ones yet. I'll let you know when we are. You can also talk to us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca via email. And call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. No matter which podcast player you're in, you can pass on a rating or a review if it lets you do it. Or just share the link and send it to a friend and say, hey, subscribe now, please. Thank you. Meanwhile, thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend and we'll talk Monday.